Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, Open Border. Finally, uh, I've been waiting for this. I have a new granddaughter who lives uh, across the border. After 19 months, the U.S. will finally reopen its land border to fully vaccinated Canadians on November 8th. But how long will those expensive PCR tests be needed to return home? And why are there still so many mixed messages about traveling? The Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, joins us on that then. COVID solitudes. We're going to be rolling out a comprehensive plan, one uh, that will withstand the test of time. As Ontario prepares a strategy to lift restrictions. We have no idea why the province has chosen not to take that step. Pressure mounts on Saskatchewan to ask for federal help with hospitals on the brink. Should they have asked for the help earlier? What needs to happen now? Saskatchewan's NDP leader, Dr. Ryan Miley, joins us alongside the mayor of Barrie, Ontario, Jeff Lehman. Plus, fossil fuels finished. Stop all investment in fossil fuels. Stop all subsidies to oil and gas industries. Those are just some of the demands from the World Health Organization ahead of the big climate conference in Scotland. But are those realistic? And what about the record-breaking gas prices for consumers? We'll speak to the head of the WHO Climate Change Program, Dr. Dermot Campbell-Lundrup, and then military meltdown. I have not uh, done anything wrong. I've acted with integrity in response to allegations. Uh, I've been exonerated. Well, one military commander fights for his job, another one is facing a new sexual misconduct allegation. Who should be held accountable for all this? Will the Defence Minister, Harjit Sajjan, remain on the job when a new cabinet is announced October 26th? Former military member Leah West joins us as a special guest on the Scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Well, it's happening on November 8th. The U.S. land border with Canada will be open to all double vaccinated travelers. But it comes with something of a COVID cover charge. Double vaxxed Canadians who want to return to this country will still have to get that negative PCR test. And guess what? It costs about 200 bucks a pop. So a family of four would have to pay $800 to come home after, say, a cross-border shopping trip. I really believe that being that little bit more careful as we get through the next few weeks, as we see what the effect is of going back to school, as we see what the effect is of colder weather, is a really sensible Canadian approach. Since August, fully vaccinated Americans have been able to enter Canada for non-essential purposes, and they can return home with no test. So why does Canada still have this expensive extra measure? And with Canadians with mixed vaccine doses now allowed to cross that border finally, why are there still so many mixed messages about traveling from the federal government? To talk about that and more, we're delighted to welcome the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, back on the program. Uh, Minister, good to see you. Uh, border opens November 8th, so we've got a date. That's great. Uh, but double vaccinated travelers still require this expensive negative COVID-19 PCR test. How long will that stay in effect for? And, and maybe as importantly, why is it necessary? Well, I'll tell you, Evan, that, that we, we implemented that requirement for a negative PCR test based on the advice we received from the Public Health Agency of Canada, and it has proven its effectiveness uh, for the past several months in, in ensuring that people who were returning uh, to Canada, not just from the United States, but from anywhere in the world, had to provide that negative test, and, and it, it has helped us, you know, protect Canadians and protect Canadian communities from the spread of COVID. And so the advice that we received from the Public Health Agency of Canada on Friday, they, they reiterated that advice, and so we'll retain that... Right. 
right. um, as, as long as it is necessary. But we're also learning and that the, the effectiveness of being of, of the double vaccinated traveler, um, that, that's also demonstrating for us a, a very significant reduction um, in the risk that, that right. is presented at our borders. Continue to, you know, that we've seen throughout the pandemic. That advice has evolved um, as, as new evidence and, and, and new data is, is available. We'll continue to follow the advice in the Public Health Agency Canada. Frankly, we're going to continue to do everything that is necessary to protect Canadians. It's, it's, okay, it's been very effective for us so far. I and, get and it. We're not going to change that until the advice um, and the evidence supports it. But there is evidence that supports it because even according to public health on, on that Friday press conference, the data is pretty clear. Uh, the number of people who can spread COVID who are double vax. Of course, months ago it was a different story because the level of double vax was totally different. But now someone who's double vaxxed, the idea that they can come across and spread COVID I think the data is less than 0.5%. Like it's it's n almost nothing. So the data would support n not needing a negative PCR test. Actually, the data would support you just need the double vax. Is it there essentially to discourage cross-border shopping coming up to uh, the, the big shopping season on American Thanksgiving? Essentially, is this a non-tariff barrier to sell, basically discourage travelers because it's too darn expensive to cross the border? You know, to be very clear, Evan, we're not trying to discourage um, those those people who, who wish to cross the border. We just want to make sure that they can do it safely. That's what the negative PCR test has has has, has been put in place for. Um, I will agree with you that the, the data is showing us, and it's actually less than 0.2% of, of people crossing that border into Canada are, 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 are proving to be infected with COVID. And so the numbers, it's been a very effective right. measure that's been put in place. But one of the things that we've done for, for Canadians, for example, who wish to go to the United States uh, to to engage in, in you know, a shopping trip, a day trip, for example, are going to be able to do so, and they're going to be able to get their PCR test in Canada, and it'll remain valid for up to 72 hours, so they, they can use exactly the same test to return to Canada. You and I know, but like, th like, those measures have been put in place to protect Canadians, and, and, and we're going to retain them as long as the right. advice from the public health agency to us is that it is necessary to right. continue to provide the protection that we have pro promised Canadians we would have in place. Many Canadians minister are confused about what they see as mixed messages the government's sending. For example, uh, there's still a travel advisory for non-essential travel outside Canada. It remains in effect until further notice. But then you, you and I were talking about the border reopening. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland was asked about this the other day when she was in the U.S. Let me just show you what she had to say. Just try to do the things you need to do and maybe hold back on doing the things that you just want to do. And I think if we can keep on doing that for a few more weeks, Canada can really fully put COVID behind us. So what, what does that mean? Like, do what you need to do, not what you want to do. So is cross-border shopping encouraged or not? Is international travel for a vacation encouraged or not? Well, Evan, I think it's really important to, to recognize that we are not out of this pandemic and we have to finish the fight. And I think the advice that Christy is providing is is, is, is prudent and, and, and the right advice uh, for people who may be choosing to travel. We know that, for example, the vaccination rates in the United States are in many regions of their country significantly lower than, than that, that which is in Canada. We also know that other destinations of international travel can present very significant risks and that the rules of, of travel to those countries can change very, very quickly. And so we're continuing to provide what we think is very prudent advice to the vast majority of Canadians that they should avoid non-essential discretionary travel. But, but we also recognize that and, and are putting in place the processes and systems to facilitate 
that travel which which Canadians want to do. But but at the same time, I think it's I think the advice that they're receiving is 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 the right but, advice. But, but you got to walk. If, the... if they are able to avoid uh, travel at this time, it's still probably a prudent choice. But you, in politics, got to walk the walk, sir. Like the prime minister took a, vaca a family vacation in Tofino, then now we've got Christopher Freeland saying only go th do things that you need to do, not want to do. Um, you know, your advice, Canadians are saying don't do non-essential reasons. His family's on a family vacation. So is that hypocrisy? Is that a mixed message? Don't, doesn't the prime minister and the government got to walk the walk if you want Canadians to do the same? Well, first of all, Evan, you know we're putting in requirements for domestic travel, for air and and rail, that people be fully vaccinated. And of course, the prime minister is in fact fully vaccinated, um, and and so we believe that that travel can take place safely. Um, but at the same time, when 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 we are discouraging um, unnecessary, particularly international travel, we recognize that there are some parts of the world and certain countries that that are not necessarily safe to travel to. It's hard to read here. And then with the borders open, I'm, a lot of folks are trying to figure out about alignments. Like we don't have vaccine passports for international travel yet. You and I have spoken about this. Can you give us any indication as when they will be ready and, and maybe why that's taken so long? Yeah, that's a priority for our government. We have been working on it for months. Uh, most of the technical issues have been addressed and we're working very closely with our provincial partners. I will tell you in our conversations with the provinces, all of them understand the importance of an internationally accepted proof of vaccination certificate. And so I'm, I'm very confident that that, that work um, will, will bear fruit and that we will have right. su such a vaccine passport, if you will, for international travel available Canadians in the coming weeks. weeks. Uh, but, but there's still a little bit of work to be, to be completed and, and we are making sure that that's done and that it, that it will work well for those Canadians who continue um, to, to make the choice to travel. Who will do the screening to verify passengers' vaccination status, the double vax at airports? Is it going to be the airlines? Is it going to be the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority? Whose responsibility and how's it going to work? Yeah, it, it, it's really important. First of all, we try to push out a lot of those um, verification processes uh, outside of across from away from our border to make to make things more efficient of when people finally arrive. And so we will be asking the airlines to examine those documents to make sure that the people have that proof of vaccination before they board the plane to come to Canada. Um, and, and so the, that those processes will be in place. But that, again, will be verified upon arrival. And, and, and our border service officers and our public health officials are, are very well versed and, and I think have done, frankly, an extraordinary job um, using, utilizing the tools that are available to date to, to, mm. to verify that the people are fully vaxxed using the ArriveCan app, for example. Um, and the implementation of a, of a new proof of vaccination certificate, which is coming, as I've, I've, I've said, will, will make those processes even more efficient. Okay, got to leave it there. I'm Mr. Blair, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thanks very much, Evan. When we come back, the politics of the pandemic with the highest per capita COVID rates in the country, why isn't Saskatchewan asking the federal government for help? Is politics getting in the way of health care? Are tough vaccine mandates needed? We're joined next by the leader of the opposition in that province and the mayor of Barrie, Ontario. Stay right here with Question Period. So the fight against COVID-19 is going on different directions depending on where you live in the country. So right now, the fourth wave is battering Saskatchewan. A surge in cases there is overwhelming the healthcare system. Saskatchewan is leading the COVID-19 death rate in Canada, the per capita rate. It's a cautionary tale that some health experts say can be traced back to the end of public health measures this summer. Meantime, in Ontario, as another example, the provincial government is preparing a strategy to lift restrictions. They're going the other way, where vaccine certificates are required. 
because so many of you have rolled up your sleeves, we're now able to finalize our plans to exit step three of the roadmap, roadmap to reopen. So is politics getting in the way of the pandemic? When does it help? When does it hurt? Is Ontario ready to start lifting more restrictions and in what capacity? Let's dig into this tale of two realities. Joining now are Dr. Ryan Miley. He is the NDP leader in Saskatchewan, the official opposition. He's also a physician and the mayor of Barrie, Ontario, Jeff Lehman. Uh, great to have both of you on the program. Mr. Miley, I've got to start with the dire situation in Saskatchewan. Hospitals are overwhelmed. Uh, the province talking about sending patients out to Ontario because they don't have the capacity. Should Premier Mo have asked the federal government for help to deal with the situation like that happened in Alberta? Absolutely, he should have asked. You know, we heard a very clear message and a, a jarring message from the leadership of the Saskatchewan Health Authority earlier this week, saying that we were days away from having to transfer patients to Ontario, days away from enacting triage, that situation that none of us want to see, where doctors will be put in the situation of having to choose who will get life-saving care and who won't, having to choose who will live and, and who will die. We should never have gotten to that state. And yet we heard at the same time, the Minister of Health and the Premier saying they refuse to ask Ottawa for the support that's needed and is available. The staff that could help us in our ICUs that Ottawa's ready to send for some reason. And I can only try to understand whether it's pride or political games, this government refuses to ask for that help, which is available and so necessary. I should tell our viewers, we did ask the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, to appear in the program. He declined. Let me go to Mayor Lehman in uh, Barrie. Totally different picture there, right? You're talking about reopening, the Ford government preparing a plan to exit phase three, where it currently is. Um, do you think, one, your province is ready to open? And, and how do businesses figure out the mixed messages, you know, people can go to watch the Maple Leafs or the Raptors in a full stadium, but you can't go to the gym. It's half capacity. Like, why do small businesses have a different message than big businesses? Yeah, there's a lot of concern here about that inconsistency. But I, I will say the cautious approach to reopening over the summer uh, seems to be paying dividends here in Ontario. I mean, it was not always such. We had a very difficult time uh, during the third wave. But I think where the government has followed the science, the Ontario science tables recommendations uh it's worked well and uh, you know the high rate of vaccination as well especially in the the major cities in ontario now really does seem to uh, being allow uh, allow us to to open up right. but there is a lot of con uh, concern about the inconsistency especially uh, with restaurants um, who are sort of watching stadiums and banquet halls uh, at full capacity and they're still struggling after a year of uh, very difficult restrictions uh, that sector has been very, very hard hit, and, and they're uh, really concerned that, uh, that the regulations don't seem to be consistent at the moment. I bet, Mr. Marley, you'd love to have these kind of problems, whether you have half capacity or full capacity in Saskatchewan. But, but I guess on, on the other side, uh, what the mayor's talking about is there's like an 82, 83% vaccination rate in Ontario. There's a, I think it's 10% or more less in your province. Um, I know there's now vaccine mandates, but why is the rate so low in Saskatchewan and what needs to happen to fix it, sir? So I think it's really important to, to make that, that connection. We're, we're dealing with the ICU, the hospital situation right now, but that's happening because of actions taken months ago. In the middle of July, you know, we were all feeling some hope as the third wave was coming to an end, 
but the premier just decided it was over. He gave up. There are two provinces where the premiers basically declared that COVID was done and eliminated every single restrictions. At restriction, and those are the two provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan, that have had the worst fourth waves. Choices that were made through July, August, and into September have resulted in the situation we're in today, including we were actually doing really well with vaccines. We were leading the country in early days. But ever since that message in the middle of July that this was over and we could move on, our vaccination rates tumbled, and the Premier has refused at every step any incentives or mandates until he was finally forced in recent weeks. Experts in public health, even our own chief medical health officer, were giving advice. He was ignoring it for political reasons. He put politics ahead of people's lives. Okay, and, and you ever wonder if politics is consequential? Uh, I remember that the prairies are leading the way, said the premiers of those two countries uh, or those two provinces, and and now of course they're not. Marilyn, just well, have your big mayors met this past week uh, with the prime minister? Cities are looking for federal government help with things like transit after transit revenue loss. Um, what do cities need now? And again, we're talking obviously with someone in Saskatchewan. They're not even there, close to the recovery yet. They're in the crisis. You're talking about recovery stuff now. What do big cities need now? Well, whether crisis or recovery, uh, some of the impacts are the same. Our, our transit system, uh, for example, our transit systems in the biggest cities in Ontario, still at less than half uh, their typical ridership. And, and that's big dollars. That's big, big bucks. And it, it affects... Uh, the municipality's ability to do other things because we want to continue to provide service and start to, right. you know, support the economic recovery, um, but with half the revenue. Public health also continues to be a major expense. Of course, here in Ontario, we have uh, local public health units and they are leading the fight in the vaccination efforts. And now that we're into that sort of last mile of vaccinations, trying to reach the last people, you got to go out to them. Yeah. We were seeing mobile teams going out to apartment buildings, uh, out to venues and those sorts of things. That takes people, that takes effort, uh, takes a lot of advertising, and, and all of those things uh, are, are unbudgeted costs. So uh, we do need some funding to, to try and help manage those impacts. And, but I think you know, we are turning our mind now to how can, as we manage those impacts, how can we support the economic recovery and, uh, and support you know, trying to get back to normal as we move through this thing. Okay, I gotta leave it there. There's so much going on. Listen, I wish uh, you in Saskatchewan good luck, and, and of course, uh, everyone in Canada hopes that uh, that fourth wave has crested and you, you get back to some safer health outcomes. I really appreciate, gentlemen, both of you being on the program. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks so much. Coming up after the break, the military in crisis again. Another allegation of sexual misconduct against a man who was supposed to take over the Canadian Army. What happens now? Who is accountable for this and what could it mean when the Prime Minister names a new cabinet? The Scrum is next to talk about all that with special guest, former military member, Leah West. Stay right here with Question Period. So the Prime Minister will be selecting his new cabinet on October 26th and Parliament will return on November 22nd. So the guessing game as to who will be in cabinet has shifted into high gear. But one seat is hotter than any other, Gentlemen, the Minister of Defence, Harjit Sajjan. After all, under his watch, the military has been reeling under allegations of sexual harassment and assault. And despite his claims to restore some kind of credibility to the military leadership, the crisis is only getting worse. 
just this past week. The man who stepped aside from Canada's top military job spoke out for the first time on camera to CTV News. Admiral Art MacDonald, who was named Chief of the Defence Staff after the man he replaced, General Vance, was accused of sexual misconduct, which he denies, and he had left the forces reeling. So MacDonald says, OK, I want my job back because no charges have been laid following the investigation. Check this out. I have not uh, done anything wrong. I've acted with integrity in response to allegations. Uh, I've been exonerated as a result of a rigorous and thorough investigation. And I remain a real champion uh, of culture change. I'm committed to it. And I think that uh, by advocating for my job, uh, what I am saying is simply that, listen, we can't have a system where allegations alone are sufficient for removing someone. But it gets even worse. Another allegation of sexual misconduct has now come to light, this time against Lieutenant General Trevor Cadieux, the man who was supposed to take over the Canadian military at the beginning of September, the Army. Upon learning of the allegation, Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan and the acting chief of the Defence Staff, General Wayne Eyre, postponed the ceremony last month. That would make Cadieux the top commander of the Canadian Armed Forces. So in response to all these revelations, the National Defence Department said, quote, the postponement of the ceremony is not an indictment of Lieutenant General Cadieux. However, due to the ongoing investigation, a decision was made to allow the justice system to pursue the matter in accordance with the rule of law. Cadieux, by the way, has denied any wrongdoing. But he's the third chief of the defense staff pick or senior military leader under investigation for sexual misconduct in less than a year. Even the prime minister has now said the military just doesn't get it. So if that's true, who's accountable? Does this spell the end of Harjit Sajjan's time as defense minister? To talk about this, the scrum is here. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa bureau chief. Tanya McCharles, parliamentary reporter with The Star. Our special guest this round is Professor Leah West. She served in the Canadian military forces, armed forces, for a decade as an armed, uh, armored officer who was deployed in Afghanistan in 2010. Uh, good to have all of you here. Thanks for your service, Leah, and good to have you back on the program. Uh, let's get your reaction to Canada's top military commander, uh, Admiral Art MacDonald, told CTV, I want my job back. I've been exonerated from misconduct allegations. I'm committed to culture change. I can lead it. What's your take? No, he can't. Um, because he doesn't have the trust of the Canadian Armed Forces or, uh, clearly, uh, the government. Uh, the government, even after it came out that he would not face any kind of charges or administrative discipline, you know, measures inside the Canadian Armed Forces, chose to promote general air to full general, um, and he continues to serve in that job. This tells me that uh, General McDonald does not have the confidence of the Prime Minister and it's ultimately the Prime Minister who gets to decide who holds that job and who the best person to lead the Canadian Armed Forces is in this moment. While General or Admiral MacDonald may have been the best person to lead back when he first assumed that position, you have to think of everything that's happened since. All of the, the, the command change, uh, the turbulence that's gone on, the efforts the current command team under General Eyre has made to uh, make progress, right. um, all of that has happened since uh, Admiral McDonald stepped aside, and that can't just be overlooked. Tanya, there's no charges, so there's been a lack of trust in the leadership, clearly, and, but there's a lack of trust in the whole system of accountability here. Now McDonald's saying, well, right. if you don't follow the accountability system, there's going to be less trust, and yet at the same time, as Leah just pointed out, maybe he's not the guy for the job. How do you square the circle, Tanya? Well, look, I think there's a couple of questions here. I mean, the fact that he has not faced criminal charges as a result of this is all well and good, but the bigger problem of accountability and credibility in the Canadian military leadership to deal with these issues is a 
fundamental question of transparency. And nobody really ever knows when uh, someone like uh, McDonald gets cleared, what happened? What is the right. actual process by which he was, in his words or in his view, exonerated? And you know what? Just not to meet the level of a criminal charge is no longer good enough for Canadians, it's no longer good enough for the political uh, branch of government. Clearly, they're not satisfied that the military has taken the whole issue very seriously. And so I think that, um, you know, he doesn't, Admiral McDonald doesn't get the benefit of the doubt here. Jo yeah, Joyce, I'm just, is it a fault of the, of the, the leadership itself or even the process, if it exonerates someone, the, is the process just so broken that even an exoneration for an internal military investigation that Tana spoke about is basically empty because the process is so bad. Well, it's not really uh, an exoneration, Evan. It is a lack of evidence or insufficient evidence. Um, and I think that's where um, the, the, the rubber meets the road. It's n if he was exonerated, then we would have a different discussion, right? Uh, look, we don't really know exactly what happened and that's what, what, what occurs again and again and again. Yes, we believe the complainants, of course we do. Uh, but I agree with, with uh, Mr. McDonald, the process is not working. Um, and there, there, there should be a process whereby, yes, we allow somebody to complain, but at the same time, um, you know, we don't know what the evidence is. We don't know what the, what the circumstances are. So is it lack of transparency? Is it the process that's wrong? Is it the mentality? Well, Leah, what's the fix? Is the fix the system? Like, if, if there's an allegation, look, the only thing people have to go on is you're either guilty or innocent, I get that. But is the fix stop allowing the military to investigate itself? Do they need its civilian investigations into uh, allegations of sexual misconduct? So I don't fall into the camp that believes that that's the case. Um, and I actually spoke about it at length this week. I don't really think that the military justice system itself is the problem. I think it's the culture, right? The military justice system exists inside an organizational culture that breeds this kind of behavior, and it rubs up against the justice system uh, at various degrees. Um, one thing I just want to point out, too, that signals to me that this man is not ready to serve is that the victim has never spoken out about her trauma specifically. He chose to raise this issue to serve himself. It was entirely self-serving. This lieutenant continues to serve, and he exposed her trauma in order to advance his own interests right now. Joyce, let me just flip back to you. Uh, accountability. Uh, does it fall for the years, right? It goes, but this is the, we've had two Supreme Court uh, uh, the Deschamps report of 2015 exposing the, sex, the, the extent of sexual harassment and abuse. The Fish report saying nothing's changed in five years. Now we've got Louise Arbour, like, I can't even believe this is still going on. Uh, nothing's changed. Does this all land at the feet of Harjit Sajjan? Can he survive in cabinet? No, I don't think he can survive in cabinet. I mean, he survived in cabinet for six years, uh, which is already, you know, a, a, a big feat, a, a, a big success-ish. Um, look. Um, they've been kicking the can down the road. Uh, studying it again and again is not going to fix it. We know what the problem is. And you know change mentalities in a couple of years. Uh, it takes sometimes generations. The reality is, uh, you know, Tonda McCharles and I started in this business more or less at the same time. Things were very different then. Uh, women were treated very differently then. Uh, there's a lot more respect in the workplace today. 
Uh, how long did it take? It didn't take a year, it didn't take four years, it took a generation. So, you know, I'm not saying that this is how long it should take, uh, but, you know, Louise Arbour, I have a great deal of respect for her, uh, but, you know, she's going to come back with the same conclusions as the other two justices. Uh, Tonda, let's just broaden this out. Um, cabinet speculation, obviously, given what's happened in the military, your thoughts on Harjit Sajjan and who may replace him, but then, of course, you know, he's got to, by October 26, he's got to pick cabinet. Anything you're watching for on that front outside of Sajjan? Well, look, I, I just on the point of Sajjan, I think he has underperformed in that role at every level, and I think there's no question that he's become a political liability uh, for the government. Now, he will go, even though in the broader political picture he's seen as a good fundraiser for the party and uh, a vote draw in Greater Vancouver, Greater Toronto. That's what saved him so far. But he is an underperformer. It's time for him to leave. As to the bigger picture of Cabinet, what I'm looking for is, is this really going to be a reset? Is it the same old, same old? Are they actually going to continue with the same people in many major positions for the next few years? I think that Justin Trudeau wants some legacy work behind him in the first 12 to 18 months of this government. Whether he chooses to stay or go, he wants to leave the party A, in good shape, and B, with big political accomplishments, such as climate change. He wants to accelerate climate change. So I'm watching for what are the big moving pieces Trudeau is going to put in place to establish his own political path forward. All right. Uh, cabinet speculation is something Ottawa does, but the big question how do you change the culture inside the military, which is just, it's, uh, the trust has been so corroded. Uh, Leah West, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for your insights. As always, Ton and Joyce will return with the Scrum. But coming up, fossil fuel finish line. The World Health Organization calls on countries to start immediately stopping all investment in fossil fuel projects, canceling all permits. Is that realistic? And what would it mean to Canada? We'll speak to the WHO's climate change lead, Dr. Dearman Campbell-Lendrup. Stay right here with Question Period. So as oil prices surge, so too are calls to end investment in the fossil fuel industry. The very future of Canada's oil and gas industry might well be coming to a head in the next few weeks at the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. And ahead of that conference, the World Health Organization, that's right, the same organization that's been the lead on the global pandemic, is turning to another aspect of health, climate, in an open letter. They've released a bold series of demands, including that all nations, quote, deliver a rapid and just transition away from fossil fuels, starting with immediately cutting all related permits, subsidies, and financing for fossil fuels. The UN has the same demand. The re-elected Liberal government has also pledged to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies by 2023 and develop a plan to phase out public financing of the fossil fuel sector. They're aiming to reach net zero emissions by 2050. But in a 2020 report from the Canada Energy Regulator, oil and gas would still make up nearly two-thirds of energy sources three decades from now, even with more policies to curb emissions. And meantime, as you probably know, gas prices are rising everywhere across Canada due to a global energy crisis. And some experts say this trend may well continue. So. Is it realistic for a country like Canada to make this kind of immediate shift away from fossil fuels? And what impact would it have on jobs and on the price of fuel? Let's find out.
Joining us now from Geneva is Dr. Dermot Campbell-Lendrum. He is the head of the Climate Change and Health Program at the World Health Organization. Uh, first of all, pleasure to have you on the program, doctor. Ahead of the COP26 conference uh, later this month, the World Health Organization, as you know, is calling for the elimination of all fossil fuel-related permits immediately and investment in fossil fuels. The Alberta Energy Minister told our program that, quote, all reliable forecasts show continued strong demand for oil and gas well beyond 2050. Does the WHO believe that is true? Well, our position from WHO is, is the same as the rest of the UN position. Um, and we're very clear that we do need to have the, the fastest possible transition to, to clean energy. And so the, those, the forecasts that people talk about are largely political decisions. Um, so we have control as a society over what we invest in, whether we invest in clean energy or whether we invest in, in fossil fuel energy. And speaking as a health agency, it, it's very clear to us that, that globally, um, we do need to make that transition as fast as possible to the cleanest possible forms of energy. I, I appreciate this. The question is speed. Uh, the fossil fuel industry in Canada says, look, we're doing more than most of the world. We're going to have net zero by 2050. Is that good enough? Well, I, I think that the net zero by, by 2050 is sort of on, globally, is on the margins of, uh, of being good enough. We really do need to, to bring that forward. And our position is also that those countries which have more capacity, which have more resources, and, and Canada is you know, a, a fully advanced, fully advanced uh, economy, uh, those countries should be making the transition as fast as, as possible and ideally faster than, uh, than others. I, I'm just trying to understand this because this is consequential for hundreds of thousands of jobs, for, for the Canadian economy. The speed of transition is, is vitally consequential to a country like ours when you've got countries like China, Australia, Japan, Russia, many others who say we're not going to abide by this stop investment in fossil fuels. Philippines are building coal plants. China's building coal plants even as they're investing in green energy, which I understand. So there's a competitive issue here. There's an economic issue. There's a, there's a frankly, a quality of life issue. So for example, should, like what is the position from a health point of view on transition fuels, LNG or nuclear energy, huge investment? Like how do you supply energy then in this speedy transition? Well, all of the, the forms of energy that you're, you're putting forward there, LNG, um, nuclear, and so on, they are cleaner than the, the, the other forms of energy that we've moved off in the past. Um, but I don't think that uh, we're, we're no longer in a position as a, in the world that we can point to other countries and say, what about them? Uh, we will only move when, when they move. And I would say that several of the countries that you've decided there although they're not doing everything perfectly, have made important, uh, have made important moves. Um, but we all have to take responsibility for our own emissions. Uh, we're beyond now the point at which we can pass the buck. And I completely identify with the point that is being made about jobs in the existing fossil fuel uh, industry. It's very clear that, that, that even um, those of us who are arguing strongly for a rapid transition out of uh, fossil fuels, are very much in favor of fossil fuel workers. Uh, so there needs to be um, measures put in place. There needs to be a, a plans. There needs to be support for those communities. I, I, I guess so. I, again, like, I, you know, I, you're, 
you're going to appear on this program as you are. Then I'm going to hear from fossil fuel industries who are saying prices are surging. The exports of fossil fuels are greater than almost any other export right now, including autos right now. Uh, and the World Health Organization is concerned about health, where we've got cities and families who are dependent on the fossil fuel industry. And what about our lives? What about our mental health? What about our health? Uh, the industry is critical to that. So, that, you know, you can talk about rapid transition, but the reality is it's hard to, tr you know, what about us? And what is the answer to that? You know, when we're not in the business of dictating to individual countries the exact shape of their transition. But once again, I, I would make the case that we, you know, we, we see communities around the world. Um, again, the country I come from uh, 30 years ago, we had a big coal uh, industry. A lot of jobs relied on that. And the transition had to be made out of coal for many reasons. Um, and the issue there was, was supporting those communities um, to make that transition uh, uh, away from coal. Um, now, I don't think anybody would want to look back and say, we, you know, we, we'd, we would like to go back to coal or we wish we'd stayed longer in coal. Um, the, ultimately, the transition has to be made. Um, and it has to be made in a way that uh, you're absolutely right. Um, supports those communities. The, the WHO letter also calls for high-income countries like Canada to make larger cuts to greenhouse gas emissions. Canada committing now to cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by the year 2030. Is that enough? It is very clear that as a, as a general point that those countries which have the, which have the resources, which, have, um, which are in a position to make these cuts and have historically con contributed the most to greenhouse gas emissions, should be the ones which are making the largest cuts fastest um, because it, it's it's more feasible for them to do so. I would also say that we also know that across across the board, across society, there are massive health gains for the country right. itself in making these uh, these changes. So it isn't actually bad news for Canadians. It's good news for right. Canadians um, if they're able to make this right. transition. It's good news for the health of Canadians. Okay, I got to leave it there. Obviously, all eyes in a couple of weeks on the uh, conference on the environment in Glasgow. Dr. Dermot Campbell Lundrum, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. All right, when we come back, vaccine ultimatums, mandates loom for healthcare workers in several provinces. But will that policy lead to critical staffing shortages? Let's talk about that and the border reopenings. The Windsor Regional Hospital CEO David Mouche joins us as a special guest on the Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. It's a tale of two realities. Provinces that took strong action against COVID using mandates, for example, are emerging from the fourth wave. Those like Alberta and Saskatchewan that didn't are on fire. What's next, though? Well, vaccine mandates loom for health industries. There are growing concerns that might lead to staff shortages and potential layoffs. Check this out. I have not seen uh, a staffing crisis like this of this magnitude since the 1990s. So, of course, we're concerned. Uh, we need frontline workers to be at work, to stay at work. In British Columbia, anyone who works in healthcare will need to be vaccinated by October 26. Those who don't will face unpaid leave by October 31st. All employees with Alberta Health Services must be vaccinated. In Quebec, that province has pushed back its target by one month to November 15th. Uh, amidst worries of urgent staffing shortages. By the way, people could lose their license there if they don't get double vax. In Nova Scotia, the deadline is set for November 30th. But what happens if there are significant staff shortages 
And what about the mixed messages from health leaders and government leaders? For example, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, telling Canadians to avoid non-essential travel even as the border with the U.S. is set to reopen November 8th. Well, the Scrum is here to dig into all that. Joining me now, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier is back. So is the Toronto Star's parliamentary reporter, Tanya McCharles. And our special guest is the Windsor Regional Hospital CEO, David Mouché. Great to have you back. Uh, and David, always good to have you back. Uh, okay, let's start with this. The lion's share of your over 4,000 employees are, are double vax, but you've had to fire 57 employees who failed to get vaccinated. Is there a concern in, for you and your hospital or for other hospitals that there, there will be staff shortages and service uh, interruptions because of potential layoffs? Yeah, I, I, I don't think so, because what you need to look at is what are you ultimately trying to achieve here? You're trying to reduce risk. You're trying to reduce outbreaks. You're trying to reduce patient harm and patients who come in for something totally unrelated to COVID, getting COVID while they're at your hospital and losing staff as a result of that as well. And I think we're looking, some people are looking at it from the wrong angle and looking at it from, oh, you know, status quo is fine. We're concerned about losing people. How about if there's an outbreak that occurs and what I just outlined occurs? That's what we should be looking at is taking advantage of every mechanism we have in order to reduce the risk and lead by example. Well, Joyce, let's talk about leading by example on the double vax we're talking about with David. And then you get some MPs are going to come back to Parliament when Parliament resumes November 22nd. They may not be vaccinated, specifically Conservatives, because they're the only ones that party that won't say who's vaccinated. What is that? What's the political cost of that? I mean, it's ridiculous. These are the Conservatives is the party who wants uh, a return to normal in Parliament. So not this hybrid, hybrid meaning some people work from their offices or from home. There's a big Zoom uh, call. So the Conservatives are calling for a return to normal, like everybody goes back to Parliament, everybody sits in Parliament, and you know the seats are kind of close by. But we don't want to have to tell you whether we're vaccinated or not. Uh, you have to tell the person at the restaurant that you've been vaccinated if you want to get in. Um, but they're taking, I think, their parliamentary privilege one step too far. You want it to be a public person. You applied for the job. You are a public person. Mm -hmm. Lead by example. Get vaccinated or get out. So there's the vaccine mandate and the politics of that, Tonda. Now we've got the border open to the U.S. on November 8th. Canadians that have to come back, and they'll be crossing in Windsor, where David lives, of course, cross that bridge. They got to get a PCR test, and, and, and the government's saying that we need that extra level of concern. So being double vaccinated like an American isn't enough. What do you make of that? Is that is that a um, COVID cover charge, or is that prudence? It might be a COVID cover charge. Look, it's it, there's a fundamental flaw in their logic because by the government's telling. Um, you can get a PCR test here in Canada, go over border shopping for the weekend, come back, and your test from Canada three days earlier is going to get you back across the border. What about whatever exposure you had across the border? Um, what about if you were exposed to the highly transmissible Delta variant? So look, uh, it's interesting. On Friday, Dr. Tam and Dr. New uh, were saying, Oh, you know, it's an extra layer of protection. But when they fundamentally came down to the numbers, the number of people who are fully vaxxed, who are coming back and having uh, shown they've been infected with COVID is 
It's like 0.2%. Right. It's negligible. And one assumes that, um, you know, they can get that test either at the American border or right after. Anyway, the logic is, it, it fails to uh, make sense to me, really. Yeah, David, I, you're on the front lines of two crises, right? You're on the border front line, so people are going to come crossing back and forth on that, requiring that PCR test. And then, of course, there's the vaccine mandate issue, which you've already discussed. What concerns do you have about all these mixed messages or the double layer of protection? Uh, what, what flags go up for you? Yeah, the concern being on the border and is... Uh, Unless the rules are identical, meaning you need the same test to get across the border versus the same, you know, the same one coming back, I have a bigger concern is I think what unfortunately is going to happen is people who are double-dosed are going to go across the United States, ignore the PCR requirement, come back. You're allowed back into the country. They're going to be told there'll be quarantine. I, I don't know where the resources are going to be to monitor all those people that might be coming back and saying, you know what, quarantine me and then they'll take the position huh. they're not going to follow the quarantine. So they got to worry about that too. So when we have different rules getting there and getting back, you're asking for it. Uh, Christian Freeland said, look, I'm going to follow the advice of the public health, uh, chief public medical officer of Toronto, Dr. Davila, who said, don't go anywhere you want to go, only go where you must go. Wait, the border's open? Should you go there? The prime minister's traveling with his family to Tofino. So, like, what is the message the government's sending? Go where you need to, go where you can go. If you've got a vac, double vac. Like, what, is it a mixed message? Absolutely. This is a government speaking from both sides of its mouth. On the one hand, we're reopening the border. Uh, Christian Freeland on, on, on Thursday saying, look, there's a return to normal. This is good. Kids are back in school. The economy is picking up. And then on the other hand, they're imposing really what is a non-tariff barrier by forcing people to take a PCR test. Look, two, 200 to $250, if there are two of you wanting to go to the States, $500, it starts to matter, even if one person. So, you know, they, they don't want you to travel. Uh, it is clear this government has is trying to deter people from getting on a plane uh, or, right. or, or getting across the country or even across the border. It is obvious that they're doing that. Uh, but the Americans lifting, you know, the, the, the requirement of a, of a test even is putting Canada in a difficult situation. And if anybody out there is thinking that they are coordinating the way they did when they closed the border months and months ago, they're not anymore. All right. Uh, that is uh, all the time we've got. Hey, David Mushi, I always appreciate you joining us. And of course, Tonda and Joyce, who are uh, our regulars, thanks to you. And thanks all of you for watching. That is Question Period for this week. Uh, Take good care of yourselves. Interesting news coming up. We are back on this program in seven short days, and I'll see you on Power Play on Monday. Hug your loved ones. Thanks for watching.